If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For the latest episode in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, was joined by the medieval historian Matt Lewis to talk about the anarchy, a bitter 12th century struggle for the crown of England, which was contested by Stephen and Matilda following the death of Henry I. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, the questions are a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. Matt, we're, we're here to talk about the anarchy, the uh, 18-year civil war contested by two claimants for the English crown, Empress Matilda, who was daughter of Henry I, and her great rival, Stephen of Blois. Now, um, the anarchy was fought between 1135 and 1153. But I wanted to begin the interview with a question about an incident that occurred in the English Channel 15 years before the Civil War erupted. And that was the sinking of uh, the White Ship, which uh, unfortunately resulted in the drowning of the heir apparent to the English throne. Now, Hannah Laura Ridgely, writing on an Instagram wants to know what happened in the white ship sinking and and how this disaster set the scene for the anarchy. So the short version of the white ship disaster is that uh, Henry I is in Normandy. Uh, He has this cross-channel kingdom and ducal properties in Normandy. So he's in Normandy at the end of 1120, decides to make the crossing back to England. He has obviously lots of his court with him, including his only legitimate son and heir, William Adeline. Uh, and Adeline is uh, an anglicisation of the old Anglo-Saxon term um, for Etheling, meaning heir to the throne. So this was a way of saying kind of Prince William might be how we would address him today. So William Adeline really just means Prince William. And he's 17. Uh, and although Henry I, you know, he has a record for the number of illegitimate children that we know an English or British monarch has ever had. He had at least 23 illegitimate children. His problem from the point of view of being a king was that he only had two legitimate children with his wife, Matilda of Scotland. That's William Adeline and William's older sister, Matilda. And so they decided to make this crossing back on the 25th of November, 
1120. And the story goes that a boatman comes to Henry I and says, I've got this fantastic new shiny ship called the White Ship. It's white and it's really fast. And he also says, my father was one of the men who carried your father, William the Conqueror, across the Channel for the the Norman invasion in 1066. So it would be my honour if you would let me take you across the Channel this time. And Henry I says, you know what, I've got my ship, I'm sorted, I'm fine. But how about you take my son and all his young mates, you know, they can have the flash new Ferrari version of of ships to get them back across to England. And so the the owner of the white ship thinks fantastic, makes all the preparations. William Adeline, 17 years old, all of his mates pile on board with more wine than there is people. The crew are getting involved, the crew are getting drunk as well. The, the young nobles are pushing the oarsmen out the way and pretending to row the boat and they're all getting more and more raucous. The the monks come on board to bless the ship and the journey and they all jeer them away in a drunken stupor. Um, We get a story that several people then disembark and one of those is Stephen of Blois, who you mentioned earlier. So this is kind of a really fortuitous moment that he gets off the ship and there's some suggestion that he might have had an upset stomach, but also that several people were growing really, really worried that this was a bad move. It was falling into evening Henry the first ship had already sailed. They were making plans to try and catch him up in this super fast new ship going into the dark. And obviously a few people probably thought this isn't a great idea and stepped off the ship. And then the ship eventually set sail. Everybody's drunk. It doesn't even make it out of Harfleur Harbour. It hits a, a rock that is a well-known hazard on the way out of the harbour, tears the set side out the ship and it sinks in the, the freezing cold water. There's Thought to have been around 300 people on board, and this was the sons and daughters of some of the the most important nobles in England at the time. There was some of Henry I's illegitimate children on the ship as well, um, and obviously William, Adeline too. And there's only one person who survives. He's a butcher called Berold from Rouen who was sailing across to try and get some of his bills paid. And the, the irony is that his poor clothing of, of thick sheepskins and things like that saved him from the cold, whereas all of those nobles dressed in their thin, fine, flimsy silks froze to death or, or drowned. And so eventually someone has to break the news to Henry that his son's died. Uh, they end up sending a little boy to go and do it because everyone's too scared to tell Henry that his only son and heir has died. And so William, sorry, Henry I then ends up remarrying. His wife has passed away by this point. He remarries, obviously realising he needs to get another legitimate son. And when it looks increasingly like that's not going to happen, he causes all of his nobles to swear to recognise his daughter, Matilda, as his heir and supports her claim to the throne when he's gone. So the white ship disaster is kind of this really massive, monumental moment in Norman English history that really changes the course of it altogether it raises all of these problems of potentially female rule. And Henry, you know, has all these illegitimate children, but only two legitimate children that he's able to to make um, heirs to his throne. So really, it is, it is the, the prelude to whatever follows. And I think Henry was probably acutely aware that he was marching into trouble after the White Ship disaster. So was there kind of tension building as his, as his reign came to an end where people's kind of jostling for position, knowing you know what was going to happen when he died? There was a fair bit of difficulty. I mean, Henry I's reign quickly gets remembered as this kind of golden age of peace and, and everything else, but it wasn't. Henry spent virtually his entire 35-year reign fighting. 
not least with one of his nephews, so the the son of his oldest brother. His oldest brother was Robert Curto's Duke of Normandy. His father left England to the second son, William II. And when William II dies, Henry nips in and steals the throne when theoretically it could have been Robert's. Um, Robert is in captivity by this point, um, but he has a son um, who is out there, William Cleto, trying to press his own claim to Normandy and potentially England. So Henry is fighting against that. And and this must drive home the fact that he doesn't have a legitimate male heir, that kind of security and comfort blanket that that would give him. So he must know that all of these vultures are circling and they're potentially looking at William Cleto thinking, is he a better bet now than Henry? Henry's going to die and leave us a whole world of problems. But eventually William Cleto dies just before Henry I does. So that kind of removes that potential issue from the playing field. Okay, um, for our next question, Hugh Burkmeyer writing in on Facebook wonders if you could explain what the anarchy was. And I, th- I thought this was a good, in- a good question to include because I think a lot of our listeners won't have a particularly in-depth knowledge of this scrap for the English throne. So I wondered if you could, over the course of a few minutes, just give us a brief overview of the Civil War, maybe outlining the main milestones along the way. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is probably that the anarchy is a, a proper name for a civil war, isn't it? I mean, by the time we get to the 15th century, we're getting all flowery with the Wars of the Roses. And by the 17th century, we've run out of names, so we just call it the Civil War. But the anarchy <laughs> is a proper name for a civil war. Yeah, it leaves you in no doubt as to what you're getting, does it? Yeah, absolutely. It sets the scene. Um, although I would argue maybe not, but we'll get to that on a little bit later, I think. Um I would say that the anarchy is a slow burner. So we have Stephen is king for 19 years between 1135 and 1154. And I would describe it as a slow burn civil war. And if you looked at it on a graph, it's probably a lot like a roller coaster. So you get kind of a gentle trundling up on a gentle slope. And then you get this massive peak in the middle where it, it shoots up really quickly, drops down really quickly. And then again, it goes into a slow kind of decline. And that peak in the middle is 1141, which we'll get to in a bit. But 1135 is when it kicks off. Henry I dies. Again, he's in Normandy when he dies at the end of 1135. And in the immediate aftermath of that, his nephew, Stephen of Blois, crosses over from Boulogne. He's ideally positioned on the north coast of France, hops across the Channel, and in a whirlwind, gets himself crowned king. So he secures the the royal treasury, which at this time is still at Winchester, where Stephen's brother, Henry, just happens to be the Bishop of Winchester, which is very helpful. He gets into London and he makes this deal with London uh, that they will support him as king if he promises to restore law and order and respect their um, rights and privileges as a city. There's some talk about them being turned into a commune, which is an emerging idea of a, a slightly more independent town. So maybe they were making a play for that as leverage against Stephen. Um, But he gets accepted by the church and by the capital and is crowned. And there's a fair chance that Henry I saw this potential risk coming because that's exactly what he did on the death of his own brother to prevent his other brother from becoming king. So Henry has kind of set the template for his own downfall there. Um, Matilda, who was theoretically Henry's heir, she's been sworn to be supported by the nobility twice. Henry I extracts that oath on two occasions but she's on the southern borders of Normandy so quite a lot further away from England she's at odds with her dad when he dies they're they're arguing over some castles that 
um, Matilda and her second husband, Geoffrey, claim Henry I had promised them as part of her dowry, but hasn't handed over. So they are at odds with her dad, which creates a problem later on when Stephen starts to say, well, on his deathbed, Henry made me heir because he'd fallen out with his daughter and his son-in-law. And and everyone is kind of, I'm not sure if I believe this or not, but there's enough room for it to be true. Um, and she's also pregnant. She's quite heavily pregnant with her second son. So she's not able to move as quickly as Stephen does and kind of misses the opportunity. And it all goes fairly quiet. You know, Stephen has a fair bit of success in his first couple of years. And it's not till 1139 that things start to really ramp up a little bit. Uh, the second Lateran Council sits, which is a big meeting of the Pope and, and all of the, the Catholic Church. And um, Matilda's side send Olga, the Bishop of Angers, to plead her case that she was recognised as heir. Men have sworn all of these oaths and now gone against them and that Stephen should be removed. Um, Stephen himself sends Arnulf, who's the Archdeacon of Seas at this point, and is a man who stays really close to Stephen. And they throw into the mix the suggestion that Matilda is illegitimate because her mom, Matilda of Scotland, they say had been a nun and Henry I had gone and pulled her out of this monastery and married her. So that's, you're not allowed to do that, makes the marriage illegitimate and the children illegitimate. And the Pope kind of bottles making any kind of decision and says, you know what, I can't talk about this today. Come back another time, maybe, but doesn't rule either way. And, and he's probably stuck in the middle of trying to to say who's the rightful ruler of England at this point. Um, later that year in 1139, in September, we get the big move forward when Matilda lands in England at Arundel Castle. Um, she doesn't bring her husband, Geoffrey. He's far more interested in trying to conquer Normandy. He's the Count of Anjou, which is just to the south of Normandy and quite fancies having a crack at Normandy himself. So she comes over with her oldest half-brother, Robert, Earl of Gloucester, who is another key player in everything that developed. They chose Arundel Castle partly because Matilda's stepmother, Adeliza of Louvain, is, is based there. She's remarried a man called William Daubeny and is now at Arundel Castle. So it's not we're not sure whether Adeliza was involved in this at all, whether she felt she was helping to reconcile the two parties, whether she offered any support or whether she was caught on the hop by her stepdaughter turning up on her doorstep. But Robert of Gloucester very quickly leaves and heads to Bristol, where he's got this massive, almost impenetrable fortress and starts to bed himself in there. Stephen comes to Arundel Castle and begins to lay siege to it. But when it transpires that there's only Matilda in there, he's in a quite a difficult position of then besieging a woman who is the also the daughter of the last king and it all gets a little bit uncomfortable for him and he ends up letting her go to join Robert at Bristol. Some of the commentators say this is a really stupid move and others say he didn't really have much choice from a, a chivalric point of view. What's the option? You, know, you kill a woman inside a castle, it's not a great look either, is it? And then we get this kind of stalemate developing with uh, Matilda based down in the southwest centred on Bristol and Gloucester. And then it erupts again at the start of 1141. This kind of, that's the peak on the roller coaster in 1141. So the 2nd of February, we have the Battle of Lincoln. Uh, and this follows on from our, a whole load of problems in Lincoln. Stephen takes an army there to try and resolve it. Robert turns up with his own army and they, they have this pitched battle. Everyone's telling Stephen to leave because Robert's got a much larger army, but he won't. He refuses to run away, but he ends up getting captured in the battle. So Stephen is now the prisoner of Empress Matilda. And then on the 21st of June, 1141, Matilda manages to get into London. And it's perhaps striking, it's taken her 
the best part of four months to negotiate entry into London. And this probably suggests the kind of problems that she was having being recognised. But she manages to start setting in motion the the plans to be crowned uh, Lady of the English. And so this is a title that she's planning to use to distinguish it from being a queen, because a queen by this point has a very specific meaning as being the husband of a king. So everyone knows what a queen's role is, but she doesn't want to be a queen. This isn't about her husband. So she adopts this title, Lady of the English. But kind of on the eve of this planned coronation, she's driven out of London by an angry mob who've got fed up and had enough of her. And the sources say that when these people burst into her house, they were able to finish off the nice warm meal that they'd all left on the table because they'd left in such a hurry. And then in September that year, we get um, a sort of battle. It's called the Rout of Winchester because there wasn't much fighting. Um, Stephen's, those loyal to Stephen sort of surround them in Winchester and Empress Matilda's forces flee. Uh, Robert of Gloucester fights a rearguard action to protect Matilda's escape and he ends up getting captured. So we've now got a, a situation where the two significant male military leaders on both sides are prisoners. And we get this uh, negotiation for a prisoner exchange that goes on. And on the 1st of November, 1141, Stephen is released. And then we get this complex set of, of hostage and prisoner exchanges until Robert is also released. And that kind of resets the chessboard to exactly where it had been at the start of 1141. So we've had all of this tumultuous stuff go on through the year but by the time we get to the end of it we're almost back to where we were at the start um and then in terms of of the next significant milestone it probably doesn't come till 1148 when matilda leaves england for good um and it's kind of in the wake of her half-brother robert dying the year before other key allies were beginning to die around her those that had been loyal to her father and it's pretty clear she's not going to get the crown if she couldn't get it in 1141 she's probably never going to get it. And so she then shifts her focus to preserving the claim in the name of her oldest son, Henry. Uh, The next year, 1149, Henry comes over to England, age 16, uh, traipses all the way through England, sort of rubbing Stephen's nose in the fact that he can, gets all the way up to Scotland and has himself knighted by his great uncle, David, who is the King of Scots. They toy with the idea of fighting Stephen at that point, but it's clear that Stephen is still far too much in control and Henry is effectively sent packing out of England. And then in 1153, we get this agreement where Henry comes back again to England, much more serious campaign. The nobles by this point are getting pretty fed up of what's been going on for the best part of 20 years, start refusing to fight. And we get this negotiated settlement where effectively Stephen's eldest son and heir, Eustace, dies And Stephen ends up adopting Henry and recognising him as his heir to the throne. And then only a year after this, 25th of October, 1154, Stephen dies. And on the 19th of December, 1154, Henry comes over with his new wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and they're crowned Henry II and Queen Eleanor of England. And that kind of brings an end to the period that we call the anarchy, those 19 years of Stephen's reign. Another question I wanted to ask was, it's called the anarchy. I mean, how chaotic and bloody was it for the people of England and its uh, institutions? Uh, as uh, Daniel O'Donnell on Facebook has pointed out, uh, this period was famously described as, as a time when Christ and his saints slept and when there was apparently a, a complete breakdown of law and order. H- how accurate a description is that? 
Anarchy is the absence of government. So it creates this impression that we had 19 years in which there was total chaos and no one was in control. Um, and I, you know, I've tried to challenge that idea a little bit. So that idea of where Christ and his saints were asleep comes from a, a passage in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, um, which was written at Peterborough. And the, the writer said, Wheresoever men tilled, the earth bore no corn, for the land was all ruined by such deeds. And they said openly that Christ and his saints were asleep. Such and more than we can say, we endured 19 winters for our sins. So that really is evocative, creating this image that it was constant chaos and carnage for 19 years. But I'm not sure that really stacks up to the facts. We end up in a situation where England gets divided into three chunks. Stephen ends up with control of the southeast and the Midlands, centred on London, but his reach stretches easily as far as York all the way throughout his reign. Matilda is based in the southwest, so they have this fortress at Bristol that nobody can crack, um, and she manages to install herself around Gloucester and all of those areas on the Welsh border, um, and she has pretty strong control there. She's minting coin, um, she's issuing proclamations in her own name from there. And in the north of England, north of the River Tees, is pretty much handed over to David, King of Scots. So as part of Stephen's problem with Continue, he's fighting on so many fronts. He's got the Scots causing trouble in the north, Matilda in the, the southwest, her husband Geoffrey in Normandy, and that's without France and everything else that goes with being king of England. So um, his settlement with Scotland effectively sees them left in control of everything north of the River Tees. But each of those three separate regions of England is effectively governed throughout those 19 years. I mean, the one that really stands out is that area of North England uh, under King David. They seem really happy with David's rule. There's there's no kind of fight back against it. Uh, there's there's no pushback. Everything is really settled, and it just becomes you know a slightly lower, slightly more southern border of Scotland. So we can see that in terms of an anarchy, each of those parts of England is being governed effectively and properly. Monasticism during this period goes through a, a real explosion in England as well. So it's all of our writers from this time are, are monks, really. They're members of the clergy. So they're the ones telling us that it's too dangerous to go outside your front door, that all the towns and villages are being pillaged and burnt down. People are robbed any time they step out into the street and monks live in fear of their lives and their monasteries being burnt down. But I mean, the cold hard facts, if we look at the Cistercian order, in England at this point. In 1135, when Stephen becomes king, they have six houses in the whole of England. And by 1154, at the end of the period, they've added another 48 to that. So they've got 54 houses now. And all of these are stocked with monks who have been quite happy to travel throughout England and, and from the continent and have settled and made successful houses. So the very people telling us that you can't step out of your front door are spreading all throughout England successfully. We have a moment in 1147 when um, a group of, I guess, what we'd have to call commoners go on a crusade to Portugal. Um, there's men from Norfolk, Suffolk, uh, Kent, and from Southampton and London, and they have no noble leadership involved in this crusade at all. They sort it out between themselves, and they all get on a ship and head to Portugal to fight in a crusade over there. And they clearly felt comfortable in 1147 to leave their family and their lands and all of those kind of things behind without worrying too much that there was going to be trouble and that they would have nothing to come back to. Um, and again, by the time we get to the late 
1140s and early 1150s, we get a series of these documents called conventios. And these were agreements that were signed between members of the nobility. So the first recorded one we have is between Ranulf, Earl of Chester, and Robert, Earl of Leicester. And it was designed to to create what they called a final peace and settlement between them. And effectively, it limited their willingness to be involved in their respective leaders' fights. So it said, we will only take 10 knights onto the field. We won't let them garrison armies at our castles that are next door to your castles. So it's really the, the nobility kept taking a step back from all of that conflict and trying to find ways to restore a decent relationship between themselves. And even at the end of the anarchy, Henry II is seen as restoring all of those institutions in England, like the Exchequer, really, really quickly. So quickly that I would suggest they probably never stopped working. You know, Stephen's income would have been reduced because he had a reduced kingdom. But that doesn't mean that the Exchequer stopped working altogether. We don't have any Exchequer records for Stephen's reign, but we only have one year's Exchequer records for Henry I. So it's possible that these things just didn't survive. But the speed with which Henry is able to install himself suggests to me that perhaps all of those things were kept in motion, albeit perhaps in a reduced format. And so I think this idea that it was anarchic and that there was all of this chaos going on comes from all of our monkish chroniclers. And they're always keen to to look for moral lessons in anything. They believe that men of the world are terrible, awful people at the best of times. So if there's an argument for the throne, it's a good reason to throw a bit of mud. But the other important thing for all of them is the locations in which they're writing. So our main writers and sources for this period, there's a man named William of Malmesbury, who is at Malmesbury Abbey. And he's right on the border between Empress Matilda's lands and Stephen's. So quite possibly sees a lot of the fighting on the frontier, the the kind of skirmishing that goes on. The author of the Gesta Stefani, which is another main source, um, initially mainly loyal to Stephen, the writer is believed to either have been the Bishop of Bath or a member of his household. So again, he's right near Bristol. He's supporting Stephen in a location which is under Empress Matilda's control. The Anglo-Saxon chronicle that gave us that quote was written at Peterborough, and this is an area where Hugh Bygo, who is later the Earl of Norfolk, causes all sorts of problems for his own reasons. He's forever walking into Peterborough, burning it, claiming it for himself. Um, and Henry of Huntingdon, who who gives us a fantastic account of the Battle of Lincoln, is a canon at Lincoln. So he sees this fighting firsthand. And so the places where some of these people are writing are probably just the hotspots. They're probably overestimating the problem as it affects the rest of the country, they're assuming that because they're being being confronted with all of these skirmishes and, and perhaps crop problems on the frontiers, that that must be happening everywhere else in the country. And so they they you know put the whole country together as being suffering throughout this entire anarchy when really there's lots of evidence that it wasn't all that anarchic and that perhaps their personal experiences affected the way they viewed how the whole country was being affected. So... Because they were on the front line, what they're telling us isn't representative of what was going on in most of the country. I don't think so. I mean, it's fair to say that they were probably in touch with monastic houses across the country, so they would have been getting news from other places as well. But there's nowhere else that really seems to have this sensation that there's complete anarchy. And if we look at all of those other evidence that suggests there was still government in place and people were moving fairly freely and things like that, you start to wonder whether the monks are 
either exaggerating or you know projecting their own personal local experiences across the whole country. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I would suggest that a man who faced as many threats as Stephen did and ruled for 19 years and died with a crown on his head must have done something right. Okay, so I wonder if we could turn now to one of the main uh, protagonists in in the Civil War, uh, Matilda. Uh, Mouse Bishop of St Albans, writing in on Twitter, asks, Was Matilda doomed because of her gender? How have historians through the ages viewed Matilda, and how has that changed as attitudes to women in positions of power has also changed? I mean, was Matilda doomed by her gender? I mean, yes, is the, the short answer to this. England in the 12th century just has no model or concept of female rule. A king is a man and he takes his men, his army out onto the battlefield. He protects his kingdom. He fights for his people's rights. He upholds the law. And these were things that a woman just didn't do in 12th century England. And so one of the main problems that men would have struggled with while they're swearing allegiance to Matilda potentially is if we have to go to war, who leads us out onto the battlefield? Because she can't. She's not allowed to. That's not what a woman does. So if her husband leads us out onto the battlefield, is he actually king? And so she's queen. So it just threw up so many problems that nobody was able to answer, or perhaps they just didn't want to answer it. Perhaps it was much more comfortable just to stick with having a man on the throne, this model that everybody recognises and knows what to do with. And I think part of this is why Matilda opts for that title of Lady of the English rather than Queen. So she's trying to distinguish herself from what people recognise as the role of a queen. Um, Lady of of Mercia was a title used in Anglo-Saxon times for a woman who ruled Mercia. So Lady of the English has much more of the idea of a king about it. But it doesn't work for her anyway, because although she manages to eventually get into London, she's driven out almost straight away. And people just can't seem to get their heads around the idea of having a woman ruling the country. So I think ultimately, yes, she's doomed by her gender in the time at which she's trying to do all of these things. We have sources that talk about her personality, but the problem we get is, again, they're monks, so they're men. And monks don't like women. It's just a fact. Um, And lots of them that talk about her personality talk about her in 1141. So when she's on this brink of claiming the throne is when they start picking apart her personality. Henry of Huntington talks about her being elated with insufferable pride so that she alienated from her the hearts of most men. So clearly he's making it her fault. You know, she's so impossible to deal with that the men just have to to throw the, the towel in. The Jester Stefani says that while she's in London, visitors were received ungraciously and at times with unconcealed annoyance. And she was annoyed with the Londoners because they'd backed Stephen um, and were refusing to give her any money, which they'd kind of freely given to Stephen. And to some extent, we see her in 1141 behaving like a man, like a king, like a ruler, which she has to do to prove that she's able to do it. But as soon as a woman does it, it's unwomanly and it's it's horrendous and people have an excuse to to shy away from it altogether. 
One interesting thing that the jester Stefani does say is that in 1141, the writer says that she behaved with an extremely arrogant demeanour and goes on to say that she began to walk and speak and do all things more stiffly and more haughtily than she was wont. So it does imply that she wasn't normally like this. So either her behaviour changes in 1141 and this effort to to fit herself into this mould of what people expect, or people start to suggest that she has all of these unsuitable personality traits as part of the reason to not accept her in 1141. So there's just that kind of hint in the background there that this isn't what she was normally like. I mean, later on, we know that her son, when he becomes Henry II, leans really heavily on his mother, particularly to to look after Normandy for him. And she's very successful and incredibly well-respected there. But that's exercising power for a man. That's something that people recognise. So she is perfectly capable and able, and people are able to work with her and respect her when she's doing what they recognise a woman is able to do. Um, So all of the bad things that we know about her really seem to come from 1141 and and perhaps a way of explaining the opposition to her that caused her not to win the throne in the end, if that makes sense. Now, turning to her her main rival, Stephen, um, JoeMD123 on Instagram asks, how much public support did Stephen enjoy? Now, yeah, this this gives us a good opportunity to talk about Stephen. I, I, I was trying to get a feel for what kind of man he was and how solid, how firm were the foundations of his claim for the crown? Yeah, I mean, Stephen, I found him a, a fascinating character. We tend to have this image of him as either the hopeless fool or the evil schemer, but either way, a dismal failure as a king. I would suggest that a man who faced as many threats as Stephen did and ruled for 19 years and died with a crown on his head must have done something right. So I think there's a lot more to him than history has really allowed. Um, His claim to the throne is a fascinating topic that throws up all sorts of issues about early medieval claims to, to thrones in England particularly. His mother was a lady named Adela of Normandy, and she was the daughter of William the Conqueror. So she's the sister to William Rufus and to Henry I. Stephen is therefore Henry I's nephew um, and to some extent seems to have been really, really favoured by Henry. Henry showers him with lands in England and Normandy. Um, so perhaps we could identify him as Henry's favourite nephew. And in the absence of a legitimate son for Henry, then Stephen becomes a potential option, albeit that his claim would have come through a female line. But Stephen... To complicate matters, Stephen has an older brother called Theobald, who is the, the Count of Bois and Champagne. And it's to Theobald that Normandy initially turns when Henry I dies. They ask him to become the new Duke. And then they have this kind of embarrassing, awkward climb down when it, news arrives that Stephen is now King of England. And there's always this preference for the, for the English and the Normans to have the same ruler because it saves dividing your loyalties and splitting the lands that they all had on both sides of the channel. So they kind of have to say to Theobald, do you mind if you don't become Duke of Normandy? Um, And luckily for Stephen, Theobald takes this fairly well. He he takes a little bit of money for it, but he he goes away. And so we know that in 1135, Stephen makes this quick crossing from Boulogne, gets into Winchester and then London and has himself crowned. And the fact is that in terms of legitimacy of claim, it's not until uh, 1272 when Henry III dies that the crown of England automatically passes 
to the king's heir, so usually the king's oldest son. Prior to that, we have this period of interregnum. So the, the king dies and there is no king until the next one is crowned. And in 1135, we have England quite quickly descending into um, lawlessness. So without a king to keep the king's peace, there is no peace, there is no law. And a lot of the reason that Stephen seems to get accepted so readily and quickly is because he comes in waving his sword and says, I can fix all of this for you, no problem at all. And to some extent he does. You know, he drives the Scots straight back over the border this first time and he settles things down quite quickly. And as I said before, he effectively does what Henry I had done previously. So there is a a template for this idea of nipping in and stealing the throne. So it's difficult to judge how solid Stephen's claim was. It was as solid as anybody else's probably during this period, albeit that some men had sworn an oath that they would recognise Matilda. Uh, And in terms of Stephen's personality, it's quite difficult to pick him out of the sources because we seem to have this dichotomy of either he's the the fool who is led around by his evil advisors and tricked into all sorts of things, or he's the evil conniving sneak who tries to get one over on everybody and trick everybody. I mean, we can say he's he's Henry I's favourite nephew, from what we can gather, so there must have been something about him. And I think generally you get the impression that everyone really liked Stephen. He's a nice man. Um, he's, he's chivalric. He's friendly. He seems to be affable, likeable. And you get the impression that maybe he was one of these people who was just too nice a man to have been an effective king. Um, so lacked that kind of ruthless streak that Henry I had definitely had. And so you get and you get these suggestions that he's sneaky and untrustworthy to balance against that, that some of the events that happen are part of his master plan. But alongside that, you get the idea that he didn't have a clue what was going on and some of his advisors were tricking him into all sorts of things. So it's quite difficult. I mean, the Battle of Lincoln in 1141, we know he refuses to run away. This may have been partly affected by his father had a reputation for um, fleeing during the Crusades in the Holy Land. And he perhaps was aware that that haunted his dad's reputation and thought, you know, I can't replicate that. So he refuses to run away. And we get one quote from uh, Henry of Huntington saying he was fighting like a lion, grinding his teeth and foaming at the mouth like a boar. So he personifies that idea of a medieval knight and warrior king who's able to go onto the battlefield. And we get the scene at the end of the Battle of Lincoln where he's surrounded Um, standing on his own and he's still fighting people off and it's not till someone manages to throw a stone and knock him out at the back of his head that they're able to to bring him down and capture him so kind of you get this nice man but an effective soldier and knight but with this idea that he's some think he was a fool and some think he was a a schemer and it's quite difficult to pull him out from that but I definitely found him a much more complex and interesting man than I think history has allowed him to have become. Wayne Gorlick on Facebook wants to know how much of an influence did the barons have in trying to keep Matilda off the throne? I mean, more generally, how powerful uh, were the barons in the early to mid 12th century? And, and did the events of the anarchy burnish or reduce that influence? This, again, it's quite a difficult thing to define clearly the role. A lot of the nobility stay entirely loyal to Stephen, at least until right towards the end. Ranulf Earl of Chester falls out with Stephen, but nothing to do with Matilda, really. He has his own problems up in in Cheshire. 
um, with parts of his inheritance. The Battle of Lincoln comes about because Ranulf, Earl of Chester, comes down to Lincoln and decides it's his castle, takes it, and Stephen goes to try and drive him out. And then Ranulf calls for help from Robert of Gloucester, not because he supports Matilda, but because it suits him in that moment. And over in Peterborough, again, we've got Hugh Bygo, later Earl of Norfolk, causing problems for his own reasons and benefit that don't have much to do with Matilda's cause either. So a lot of the barons had their own agendas that were separate to Stephen and Matilda's agendas. We get a phase where Stephen creates a lot of new earls and he seems to be trying to decentralise the government. So Henry I has has created kind of the exchequer and all of these kinds of things, really centralising the government. And Stephen seems to be trying to reverse that and going back to more like an Anglo-Saxon pattern of having these local rulers who were responsible for law and order in their regions. So he creates this clutch of earls who are loyal to him because he's created them and given them authority. But as Matilda increases in power, she creates her own earls as well. So you quite often get this competition where two men have got the same title and it's a case of it belongs to whoever can get it. So that creates this kind of tension between the barony, which may have been the idea in what Stephen and Matilda were doing. But in terms of the role that they play, I mean, they remain, like I say, the vast majority seem to remain loyal to Stephen throughout, really. And Matilda struggles to get any noble support other than the earls that she eventually creates. But it is also the earls and the barons who effectively bring about the end to all of this period. So if we think about those conventios that I mentioned earlier, by the end of the 1140s, they're kind of really fed up of all this toing and froing and the, the unanswerable questions. And if there is, you know, unrest and, and unruly behaviour around the country, it's, we've tended to think that that suits the barons, that, you know, they get rich out of plundering small villages. Well, they don't. Barons at this period, they get rich by farming their extensive estates and taking it all to market and making money. And that requires peace a workforce, secure markets, safe roads, and all of those kinds of things. So that's really what the barons have an interest in. No doubt some of them were happy to go and pinch a bit of cash every once in a while, but not for 20 years. It would defeat the purposes of the way, it would defeat the ways that they make money. So it's in their vested interest to bring an end to it. And this is where we start to see, particularly when Henry, the future Henry II returns in 1153, They just don't want to fight. Um, We get these points where the two armies are on either sides of a river and there's about to be a battle, but then the barons find a reason not to to engage. It's too wet, the river's too deep, we can't do it. And there's one point where Henry and Stephen kind of meet in this little island in the middle of a river. And although the source says that Henry and Stephen were alone, it goes on to tell us what they discussed. I don't know how he knows. But you kind of get this image of them standing there, you know, shaking their heads and rolling their eyes, saying... Blooming nobles, you know, all we want's a good scrap and we'll settle this once and for all. And they just won't do it, you know, they're just not up for it. And really, so really it's their opting out of continuing any kind of armed fight that forces Stephen and Henry to come to this arrangement and to finally come to terms and find a way to end all of these problems before, you know, the, the barons potentially just walk away and abandon both sides. And then we do end up with something closer to anarchy and lawlessness. So I think that probably teaches the barons that they do have a significant amount of power if they all work together for a common cause. So one baron on their own, Ranulf or or Hugh Bygo, 
can achieve a certain amount, but not very much, and will normally end up losing to the crown. But if they all band together, they can actually affect what the crown is doing. And I think, you know, not too long in the future, Magna Carta perhaps becomes the ultimate expression of that, that if the barons work together, they can bring the crown to heel. But as long as they stay divided, the crown is always going to stay on top. Right, I'd like to turn now to one of the most dramatic events of the anarchy. And um, that was the the exchange of um, Robert of Gloucester and Stephen in 1141. So I hope I'm getting this right. So Stephen had been imprisoned in Bristol for nine months. Is, is that correct? Yeah. And Gloss, uh, Robert of Gloucester had himself been captured in Winchester, I believe. Yeah. So Ed Hatton on Instagram asks, um, do you think this exchange was, was a, fair, a fair trade? And who benefited the most from the deal? It's definitely not a fair trade, an earl for a king, at, the, at that kind of most simplistic level. Watching how these negotiations kind of develop is really interesting in the sources, because I think from the outset, Robert really trips himself up. So he makes this point that I'm only an earl, you can't swap me for a king. There's got to be more to it than that um and they try and say to to robert you know you can become the most senior figure in stephen's government and all of this kind of thing um if you get matilda to abandon her claim but what robert has done by even entering those negotiations is recognize stephen as a king and as the the current legitimate king of england and that's something that matilda's cause relied on proving was never the case stephen was a usurper and should never have been king so I think whilst Robert tries to set this scene where he's not worth swapping for a king, so there's no way they're going to get Stephen back just for him, he kind of trips up and undermines the whole cause by pointing out that Stephen is a king who's worth far more than Robert is. But also on the flip side of that, Matilda's cause stalls completely without Robert because she is the man who leads her armies into the field. He performs that role that people would normally expect from a king but he does it in complete loyalty to his half-sister Matilda. So without Robert, she is completely stuck. She doesn't have anybody else who can step up. This is the the absence of noble support from her cause, really. So she's stuck where she doesn't want to release Stephen because that perpetuates the problem and sets her cause back. But she has to have Robert back, otherwise she can't progress her cause any further, and she's stuck. And so... Whilst an earl is never worth a king, in Matilda's mind, getting Robert back was definitely worth letting Stephen go. In terms of who benefited most, Stephen, definitely, I think, you know, he gets this position at the end of 1141, where we've had this battle, he's been captured, Matilda's got into London, almost been crowned Lady of the English, and then been driven out. And by the end of of 1141, Stephen is back in the position he was at the start of 1141, almost as if all of that year kind of never happened. To contemporaries, I think it looked a lot like Lincoln and Stephen's fall and capture was was divine judgment. So losing in battle is always the judgment of God. So God had withdrawn favour from Stephen at that point. But his release and his recovery, still wearing the crown, then looks like the restoration of God's favour to Stephen. So he is now back you know, on God's good side, ruling rightfully. And how does Matilda challenge that. But I, I might argue that the the bigger winner overall was actually the institution of the crown. Because we get this situation where the king is a captive 
but the institution of the crown survives all of that. So beyond the individual, and we'd see it again when Richard I is, is captured on the way back from the Crusades, the institution of the crown is able to withstand periods of the king himself being a captive and emerge almost polished up and even shinier than it ever was because now God is shining on the king and he's still wearing the crown and the, the crown as an institution has endured. And perhaps there's an element of that that still goes on today. You know, we've, we've still got a monarchy to this very day and that institution um, endures and survives all kinds of things. And perhaps this goes all the way back to those kinds of ideas that the person wearing the crown is separable from the institution of the crown that they represent. So what was a breaking point for Matilda to give up her claim on the crown and focus on her son, Henry II? I mean, this is clearly a, 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 a really important moment in the eventual resolution of, of the Civil War. That's a question from Maddie Hodges. It's a great question. And I think it comes in two stages. So 1141 has shown Matilda that she has very real, very tangible and apparently insurmountable problems with trying to press her claim. There's no desire for female rule. There doesn't seem to be a pattern or an understanding of how it would work. And there's no way around that, really. She never seems to present a plan that people can accept. But then again, I think it escalates. She she persists. She stays in England for another six years after that. I think the real crunch for me comes um, on the 31st of October, 1147, when Robert of Gloucester dies. And we know what the absence of him from her cause did in 1141. She she effectively released Stephen to get him back because she she was so desperate. She re- realised how much she needed him. And so when he dies and other key figures begin to die away as well, there's still the lingering issue of female rule. I think she must now realise she just doesn't have a hope. But what she has done is she's held out until her oldest son is 16. So she sails back across to to continental Europe but she's kept that flame alive until her son is 16 and is able to step in and do it herself so we don't know the exact point at which she realised she was never going to be ruler of England but whenever that was whether that was in 1141 or whether that was you know 1147 1148 she just got really tired and fed up of it all and left. But what she did do either way is keep the flame burning for her son until he was ready to pick it up for himself and to to make that claim. So it never faded from people's minds and people were always reminded. And the stage was kind of set for Henry to come in. So although she never got to rule England herself, she did a pretty good job of making sure that her son would one day sit on the throne of England. Yeah, I'm quite interested to just get your opinion on how the events of the anarchy shaped um, Henry II, his rule, what kind of king he was. I mean, it was obviously a, clearly a, a pretty traumatic upbringing for him with all this going on around him. Can we see the anarchy in, in his style of rule? I think we can in certain places. There's one episode when Henry is quite a young boy. I think he's like 12 or something like that. Uh, and he apparently, without his father or his mother's permission brings a bunch of mercenaries over to England to try and invade you know this idea of this preteen waving his sword around in front of this bunch of burly mercenaries trying to invade England and when he first lands it causes all kinds of problems everyone panics that Henry is here with vast hordes of treasure a huge army and it turns out that it's just this young boy with a couple of dozen mercenaries behind him 
And he traipses around England a little bit, doesn't have any success, runs out of money to pay the men he's brought with him. And so he goes to his mother and says, can I have some money? And she says, no, you can't. You know, on the naughty step with you, you didn't agree any of this, no money for you. He goes to his uncle Robert, uh, who he spent some time with uh, as part of his education. And so he knows and he asks his uncle Robert for money to pay his troops. And Robert says, no, um, you can't have any, you know, you need to learn your lesson the hard way. And actually he ends up, Henry goes to Stephen asking for money to pay off his troops. And Stephen pays them, partly because it gets them out of England, partly because it's the chivalric thing to do. Perhaps this creates the atmosphere in 1153 where they're able to reach this compromise. So Henry recognises that there is a way to be friends with the people that you're fighting, that there's this kind of element of chivalry in negotiations. You don't have to hate and go right for the jugular. One of the big ways we see it affecting Henry is that he comes to the throne unopposed. So because he's the compromise candidate now, he's able to take that few months to come over to England. It's, it's for the time, a fairly big gap between um, at the death of one monarch and the coronation of another. And so he comes as a candidate accepted and acceptable to both parties. He doesn't look to punish those who hadn't supported his mother. So he's not vindictive about this. And perhaps this is the lesson that he learns from Stephen. Perhaps it's better to just let bygones be bygones and move forward together. One of the things that he focuses on really heavily early in his reign is castles. So these have been a thorn in both sides throughout the anarchy. So they swap hands. There's really long sieges at some of the castles. There's sieges that last almost the entire 19 years of Stephen's reign. And so Henry is quick to take as many castles as he can back into royal hands and to give them to men that he trusts, but then they hold them from the king. He has lots and lots of castles destroyed, um, completely torn down. So we have castles in the sources that are talked about that there's no evidence of today because they didn't last very long um, and were very quickly torn down. We had castles and there were counter castles built and then there were counter castles to the counter castles. Um, and so Henry is quick to remove all of that because those are the the tools with which the civil war had been able to endure so long. And so he's obviously acutely aware of that and that affects his early thinking. The crown, the crown takes control of a lot of those castles really early on. And again, I think Stephen had perhaps demonstrated the, the power of the Institute of the Crown, as I talked about a little bit earlier, and Henry's able to, to leverage that to give himself a bit of security. He understands that the crown is, is quite unshakable, really, by this point. Whoever happens to be wearing it, there is an institution there that will endure. I think perhaps the, the biggest impact on Henry is just being free of the anarchy that he ruled without a rival, part of being that compromise candidate, at least until his sons grew up, you know, his sons would eventually turn out to be um, the biggest thorn in his side. And that's a, a whole other story. But maybe the biggest impact was being able to rule free of the anarchy for the first time in 20 years of English history. Finally, uh, I'd like to turn to a, a popular query um, amongst searches on the internet. And that is, what was the anarchist's chief legacy? What, what were its uh, lasting effects on England? I mean, was, was this an event that loomed large in the popular consciousness for a long time? I think it did and it still does. We still call it the anarchy today. And I think most people will talk about it being this period when Christ and his saints slept, where there was 19 years of almost continual warfare and crop burning and all of those kinds of things. I don't think that's necessarily true, but it's clearly left a mark. 
on the the popular consciousness right up to today. You know, the the CAD file books, for example, you know, set during the anarchy. So it's it's an ideal place to set any of those kinds of murder mysteries and all of those kinds of things. I think it had, as I've said a couple of times now, you know, an impact on the institution of the crown. So it, it created this idea that the institution of the crown was was solid, could withstand periods of a king being in captivity, and perhaps could withstand periods without a king. So these interregnums between kings. And perhaps that plays into the reason that the UK still has a monarchy to this very day. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but perhaps that's a legacy of the anarchy, um, that, that reinforcing those ideas means that we never got rid of the monarchy in the United Kingdom. I think the nobility probably learned that they could work together and achieve something. And again, Magna Carta becomes the ultimate extension of that. So within 60 years of the end of the anarchy, we've got John being forced to sign Magna Carta by all of the barons coming together and and holding him down and holding him to account. So they had perhaps learned that they were able to do that if they wanted to. But also I think the, the danger that people might have learned from it is that the best way to bring down a monarch is to have a rival to his claim. It endured 19 years because there was an alternative in Matilda. One of a king's primary roles is to keep his nobility in check, to maintain law and order, but discipline amongst his nobles as well. And that's always going to be difficult to do when there's a, a ready-made alternative out there for someone. So it's difficult to punish someone if they can just say, well, I'll go over to Matilda then and she'll be nice to me. So you either have to not punish them and allow them to get away with things, or you have to punish them and drive them to your enemy. And we see that, you know, recurring later in Henry II's rule, the French kings are keen to set up his sons as rivals to him, particularly Henry the Young King, but then in succession, most of them. And even by the end of the the medieval period, the Wars of the Roses is exactly the same thing. We have all these potential rivals to thrones. So it divides loyalties all over the place. And I think that's a really clear danger that comes out of the anarchy. So if you want to overturn a king, it's the best way to do it. If you are a king, it's really dangerous to have a rival out there. That was Matt Lewis. His book, Stephen and Matilda's Civil War, Cousins of Anarchy, is published by Pen and Sword. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Ralph Hope will be discussing what happened to the Stasi once the Berlin Wall came down. (laughs) 